This is the word of the Lord. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Arawir, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of the Rephaim. Jair the Manasseh took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Makathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath Jair, as it is to this day. To Makir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, and with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border, from Chinnereth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over into this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. This is the word of the Lord. I would argue that how someone tells the story of their life says a whole lot about their functional view of God. Let me give you some examples. Say you're, you're catching up with an old friend. You know, holidays are coming up. Many of us will have conversations with people we haven't seen in a long time. You're hearing what's happened in their life as of late, and, and the story that they tell is, is more or less the list of all the things they've been doing at work or in their family or in the community. Maybe they, they claim to be a Christian or just come out and tell you that. But after the conversation, you, you can't help but sense the, the good works they're doing are the functional center of their story. You know what I mean? Just talked a lot about what they're doing. Or say you're, say you're talking to a, another family member after Thanksgiving dinner. And it seems like no matter which way the conversation goes or you try to steer it, they find a way... You ever felt this? You know, to to insert example after example of of all the terrible or hurtful or crazy things other people have done to them. That conversation feels like a a police lineup of personal enemies and a lengthy one at that. And and as you're driving home, you you can't help but sense, kind of like the first person, that it just feels like, All the bad things other people have done to them are the functional center of their story. Ever felt that? 
Or say you're caring for a church member who asked for prayer. Hopefully that's happening Sunday after Sunday. And you invite them to share what's going on and they proceed to to share with you tearfully a list of all the sins they've committed. All the consequences of various mistakes and failures and and they tearfully say, "Would, would you ask God to help me stop making a mess of my life so I can be useful in his kingdom? And you willingly pray for them for a few minutes. But, but afterward, you, you can't shake the sense that, that something was off. It was almost as if their sin had become the functional center of their story. The first couple chapters of Deuteronomy review a roughly 40-year portion of Israel's history. Israel's story, stretching from shortly after they leave the land of Egypt where they were enslaved to right before they're about to enter the promised land. That's a lot of ground to cover in three, four chapters. And the focus shifts at the end of chapter three, if you didn't catch this already, from what the whole nation has been doing to what Moses himself has been doing. There's a shift. And Moses speaks of the good works he did for Israel. We'll look at those. He he speaks of the enemies she had faced and would soon face. He, He even speaks of the consequences of his own sin. Just like those people I described. All that's real. But here's the striking thing about this passage. None of those things are the functional center of the story. None of them. The way Moses describes it, at least, God is. God is. He he always has been. He always will be. And Moses perceives as much and wants Israel to remember as much as she enters the promised land. And I would argue, Kingsway, we need the exact same exhortation. Okay? What's that? That our good works are not the center that our enemies are not the center. That the sins we commit and the consequences we experience as a result are not the center. God is the center of our story. And that's true in a cosmic sense. What cosmic mean? Well, you know, whole world sense for every man or woman who's ever lived. But it's especially true. Hear this. It's especially true in redemptive sense for the blood-bought people of God. So let's consider some of the ways Moses sees God at the center of the story. Not merely for the sake of observing God at this story center, but that so all of us would have what? Eyes to see, right? What we prayed for earlier, eyes to see. How is God at the center of my story? So here's the first way we see that. Point number one, God uses his people to give rest to his people. God uses his people to give rest to his people. Verses 12 to 20. Just to catch you up to speed on the background here, Israel has recently defeated, and by recently, I mean recently as in Deuteronomy recently, (laughs) in the time of chapter 3 recently, two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, Sihon and Og. Pretty bad dudes. And some of the Israelites after that, Victory, those victories, say, hey, Moses, would you give us their land, Heshbon Bashan, as our inheritance instead of us waiting to go over the Jordan River to the west with everybody else, all the other tribes of Israel, and get our land there. We want this land. Evidently, some of them thought this would be a great place to raise livestock. I have no idea what makes a good land for raising livestock. But Reuben and Gad and some of the tribe of Manasseh had a lot of livestock and Numbers 32 fills out the details if you want more information. They, they clarify their attention. Listen, we're not trying to create division. We're not trying to shirk our responsibility to help our brothers. We'll go over and fight with them. And, and so Moses obliges. And he, he portions, divides up the, the Transjordan territory to the east to the two and a half tribes. As God's appointed leader, that was his job. He was responsible for distributing the land. And the pattern in verses 12 to 17 is pretty consistent. 
Verse 12, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. Verse 13, I gave to the half tribe of Manasseh. Verse 15, to Machir, I gave Gilead. Verse 16, to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave the territory. What's the verbal pattern? I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave. Okay, Moses, we get it, you're giving. (laughs) It's very clear that dividing the land, that's what he was doing, required real leadership work on Moses' part. No less than, than conquering the land in the first place. The, the little aside in verse 14 is instructive here. The region of Argob didn't fall into Jer the Manassite's lap. What did he do? He took all the region of Argob. Hard military labor was required. And it would continue to be required when, when the rest of the nation crossed the Jordan River and began to fight against the Canaanites. So, so Moses makes very clear here, he doesn't want Israel to miss this. His labor and theirs is significant. It's not an incidental part of the story. But notice, look at verse 18. How does he summarize the whole? whole experience, verse 18, I commanded you at that time saying, what's the big picture here? The Lord, your God has given you this land to possess. Translation, guys, this isn't ultimately my work or your work. This is God's work. This is something God is doing. He's giving us the land. Why? Because he made a covenant promise to Abram centuries earlier. Genesis 15. To do that. And so in verses 18 to 20, twice Moses refers to the land as something he is giving. And twice he refers to the land as something the Lord gives. Why? Because he's bipolar and he can't make up his mind? Or No. No, okay? Because Moses recognizes that the Lord was simply using him to get it done. He's using him. Christian, when you are doing the work of evangelism or discipleship or mercy ministry, or administration, or or parenting, or giving, or whatever other good work God has called you to do. Know this. Please hear this. That the surest way to not be crushed under an oppressive sense of responsibility is to remember that your work is ultimately the Lord's enterprise. Has he seen fit to use you? Praise the Lord, <laughs> right? But, but don't think for a moment that success ultimately rides or falls on the tide of your diligence or your perfection or your strategic leadership or your exceptional labor. What are you? What, what am I? We are tools in the master's hand. We're instruments Success is guaranteed by one thing and one thing only. What's that? God keeps his promises. He completes the work he began. Rest in that weary saint. I'm preaching to myself here. Rest in that. that. That doesn't remove the necessity of hard labor. Doesn't make us passive, but rather it, it infuses our hard labor with, with a joyful contentment, a quiet confidence that would otherwise elude our grasp. Look at verse 20. What sort of purpose did God accomplish by giving, remember it's his work, giving Israel land to possess? What's he after here? Verse 20. The goal, until the Lord, Moses says, gives rest to your brothers as to you. Rest. Does that mean a nap on Sunday afternoon? (laughs) Well, perhaps. I hope to do that in a couple hours. Invite you to join me. But in this context, it's, it's far deeper than that, friends. 
far more significant than that. Rest describes more than just the absence of military conflict or, hey, praise the Lord, we're done wandering in the wilderness and eating the same thing every day. Okay, no, rest in the land, rest in the land is the joy, the life, the peace, the satisfaction of living as God's people in God's place. God's people in God's place. It it points back to the Garden of Eden, the perfect place God created for his people. It points forward to the new heavens and the new earth, that the day Christ returns to dwell with his people, make all things new. And it points to the present age where God by his spirit is is coming to dwell in the hearts of men and women who repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And don't miss this. It points to the local assembly of the church. This very gathering where we experience God's presence in a powerful way through the ministry of the word and the sacraments. God delights to give his people rest in all those senses by bringing them into his place, bringing us into his place. He he does that through the gospel, through the work Christ accomplished on the cross. Rest from proving your worth and value. The gospel gives that. Rest from doing enough good deeds to earn God's approval. The gospel gives that. Rest from the agony of of searching for someone or something to to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. The gospel gives that too. Hear Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, he says. Friend, hear that. Invitation to you this morning. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And even as I say that, we need to know there's a parallel here between the way God gave Israel rest in a physical land and the way God gives us, in a spiritual sense, salvation rest today. Look at verse 18. What what did Moses command Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh to do? All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers. So all your fighting people are still going to go west, across the Jordan. Only your wives, your little ones, kids, and your livestock shall remain in the cities that I have given you on the other side. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land, the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. So Reuben and Gad and and half of Manasseh had tasted and seen something of God's rest in their land, Moses says. And now it was their responsibility to what? To, to help the rest of God's people, notice that, to experience the same thing. What does that illustrate? Well, I think it, it's a beautiful picture, friends, of, of the very thing God has called all of us to do for each other as members of a local church. Think, think about what does Hebrews 3 tell us? In the context of describing salvation rest in Christ, Hebrews 3.12, how do we experience this salvation rest? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. Say things to one another, write things, text things to one another every day, as long as it is called today. Translation, no days off. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
you realize if it doesn't matter how many years you've been a member of this church, tonight you could be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you don't believe that, you don't know the doctrine of sin. (laughs) I need you to say what to me? (laughs) Matthew, remember Jesus, trust Jesus, obey Jesus. You need me to say to you what? Friend, remember Jesus, trust Jesus, obey Jesus. Whatever temptation, whatever suffering's going on, God uses his people, he uses us to give rest to his people in Jesus as we what? Urge, exhort, admonish, rebuke, warn, encourage each other verbally to hold fast to Christ. In other words, we're called to do today the very same thing Reuben and Gad and Manasseh were called to do. God's ways haven't changed. What's the main point? He gives rest to his people through random acts of the Spirit. (laughs) Spirit's involved. He gives rest to his people. How? Through his people. And even as I say that, I, I doubt many of you would disagree in principle with that. If we took a vote right now, how many people in this room believe that God gives rest to his people, help us, helps us hold fast to Christ through his people? I, I hope none of you would vote no. But, but the claim of Deuteronomy 3 goes a lot further than just, do you agree we need that? Or do you agree God rolls like that? Or do you agree, in theory, that's a great thing to experience and do for others? goes a lot further. Here's the question. Are you willing to help other people find rest in Jesus even when it costs you something? Now we're getting personal, right? Think about it. What, What did the men of valor from those three tribes have to leave behind? And not just for a couple days, like or an overnight, or even a few weeks for for months all their families, all their possessions. To which I say, wait, 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 um, God, don't you want husbands to love their wives? Don't you want fathers to care for their children? If, If you're a Christian, isn't your family supposed to be the highest priority in your life? Right? It it almost sounds like Moses is instructing families to, to sacrifice their own comfort for the sake of helping God's people experience his rest. That's exactly what Moses is doing. He's commanding Israel to reject the self-centeredness that says, I've got what I need out of this church, so I'm tapping out now. We do the same thing if we use family time or family needs to justify or excuse our failure to sacrificially love or serve, or show hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ. There there is a, hear this, there is a Christian species of family first that is nothing more than selfishness in disguise. Then and now, Kingsway, then and now, God calls us to lay down our lives as individuals and families for what? The collective good of God's people. In other words, we don't don't find life by holding on to our life as families. We find life by laying down our life as families for the good of others. And I'm not talking, moms and dads, to be very specific, if you're a parent in here, I'm not talking about discipling everyone else's kids but your own. (laughs) Okay? If you're not discipling your own kids, you're not qualified to do anything else. That's biblical too. I'm talking about leading your kids 
through the example of your life, that, that caring for the welfare of the church, the people of God, is of the highest priority in your family. Would your kids pick up on that? Listening to you, watching you, where they think, well, the church matters, but like family, that's where it's at. Don't love the church instead of loving your family. And don't love your family instead of loving the church. Love your family by leading your family and sacrificially serving the church. Even when it's hard. Even when it's inconvenient. Even when your kids say difficult things like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Even when it reduces the amount of alone time you have on your couch to watch Netflix. We need to remember Jesus' words in Luke 9, 59. To another he said, follow me. Live for my kingdom. Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Surely you don't have a problem with that, Jesus. I mean, surely you of all people are family first. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a whole other sermon. (laughs) But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's Jesus talking to us. It it required a significant amount of trust in the Lord friends, for Reuben and Gad and Manasseh to leave their families and goods with no military protection whatsoever. You didn't have the UN. You didn't have NATO. It wasn't like, well, you know, if the Philistines start doing their thing, you know, some other nation will come in and take care of our people. And so we're all sort of watching each other's but No, it was a dog-eat-dog world in the ancient Near East. And in that world, in that context, where from the perspective of human wisdom, what the Lord through Moses was calling these tribes to do made no sense. God said, trust me. Live for my kingdom. We pray. This will go online. If I hear that their kids are suffering for Jesus' sake in their context in a way that they never did here in the States, does that mean never should have gone? No. No. Because since when did did what is easiest for our families become the defining mark of biblical obedience. That's not the kingdom of God. God uses his people to give rest to his people. And that requires significant sacrifice, Kingsway. Laying down good things for the sake of something far better. What's that? The joy of participating in the work God is doing in you, all around you that Christ Jesus might be glorified. And listen, lest we fall prey to pride or or self-pity, we can do this ruminating over all the things we've given up for the sake of God's kingdom. I worked this many hours. (laughs) It's like I gave this much money. Lest we go there, remember this. What's the big point? Yes, God uses his people to give rest to his people. God uses our good works, but they're not the center of the story. God is. God is. Here's the second way Moses sees God at the center of the story. Verses 21, 22. This will be a brief point. The God who delivered us in the past will deliver us again in the future. 
We could just sing having remembered that. What, what else did Moses do at that time? That's kind of the narrative marker in this passage. Besides giving people land across the Jordan, he gave a specific command to his successor, to Joshua. Remember, Deuteronomy as a whole represents Moses' last words. You got a leadership transition going on here. So what does he tell Joshua? Look at verse 21. Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings, Sion and Og. Gone. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. Keep your eyes on that verse. Here's why. The first your is singular. He's talking to Joshua. But the second your and the final you are both plural. What's that mean? That Moses is addressing Joshua and he's simultaneously speaking to the entire nation. Preparing them to follow him. And friends, that message is exactly what Israel needed to hear. After the defeat of Sihon and Og, but before they're jumping into the fight in Canaan. What, what do they need to hear? That what God has done in the past is the most reliable indicator of what God will do in the future. I make that point because sometimes I hear people talk about faith in God as if it's this blind leap in the dark. I hear that all the time, actually. I, I guess I'll, I'll give faith a shot and see what happens. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is informed reliance. Okay, trust grounded in reliable evidence. Think about it. Why, why do we trust God to give us as his people final victory over every physical and spiritual enemy of our souls? Well, because we just need someone to do that, so we believe it into existence? No, no, no. Because we have a sure record of God's faithfulness in the past, friends. You open your Bible. It, it's, a, it's a living archive of the faithfulness of God. You, you find yourself doubting, questioning, struggling. It, will God come through? Will he provide? Will he overcome? Go to the archives. Go to the archives. You don't have to go up to D.C. to go to the most important archive. Because you've got example after example in Scripture of God delivering his people from their enemies. All of that culminating in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? Where, where God himself delivers us from our greatest enemies, from sin, from Satan, from death. May the Spirit guard us from being a people who perpetually cry, oh Lord, what have you done for me lately? That's not good. Because in light of his faithfulness, what, what do we need to say? How do we respond to enemies without and within? Look at verse 22. Moses tells us how to respond. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. What are you tempted to fear? Think about that. What, what are you worried will, will overwhelm you this week? Or, or prevent you, like, like a wall, an obstacle, from experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises in your life? Do you, do you fear humiliation? Do you fear illness? Do you fear sickness? Do you fear, fear betrayal? What, what assorted enemies are you concerned might, might keep you out of the land? The land of enjoying relationship with God. Is a world filled with physical and spiritual enemies too powerful for us? Part of our existence in this life? Is that a real thing? Are there real spiritual and physical enemies that are too powerful for you? Waiting for you this week, outside those doors, even in this room? Yes, absolutely. And I would argue, we don't know how helpless we really are. So why should Joshua not be afraid? Why should Israel not be afraid? Christian, why, why should we not be afraid as the people of God? Well, Moses tells us, because the Lord our God fights for us. 
That's why he, he personally contends against whatever enemies oppose his good and perfect plans for your life, Christian. God himself is opposed to that. He's not sitting on his heavenly throne, you know, enjoying a couple whatever, saying, if you only could see what I see, you'll know all this will work out in the end. So would you just quit your whining? Would you just chillax with me and let's just watch this all play out? He's fighting for you. Some of you parents know what that's like, what it feels like. You hear somebody messed with one of your kids? Mm. <laughs> Infinitely more, our Heavenly Father. When an unjust boss seems hell-bent on destroying your career, it's the Lord your God who fights for you. When a critical spouse makes leading or following ridiculously impossible, it's the Lord your God who fights for you. When the, the allure of sexual sin feels impossible for you to resist, the Lord your God fights for you. He's not, he's not passively watching as your life goes down. Content to know it'll work out in the end. He's actively, continually, faithfully, graciously fighting with those who contend with us. If you're his. So when Moses says to Joshua, Moses says to Israel, look at the verse. So will the Lord do. That's not just the divine declaration of war against the Canaanites. That is a promise of victory over every evil power in the universe. I think of it this way to illustrate this. What does a team of seven-year-olds, hang with me here, playing kickball feel when they're down by two points and the bases are loaded and one of the dads is up to the plate? What do they feel? Why do they spontaneously begin cheering and jumping up and down? Go, dad, go, dad, right? You can see that in your mind, right? Because they know what my presence on the team represents in that moment. What's it represent? Home run is coming, (laughs) right? Home run's coming. We're going to win, guys. A win is guaranteed. That, that's why they're jumping up and down. Friends, such is the confidence that we have in King Jesus. The, the enemies of our body and soul are real, but they're not the center of the story. God is. God is. Here's the third way and final way, at least for this sermon where Moses points out the God-centeredness of the story. And this comes in a surprising fashion in the very last vignette in this chapter, in, in what is arguably one of the most personal and vulnerable disclosures Moses makes in this whole section. Here's the point. Sin may change the way we experience God's power, but it does not prevent us from participating in God's work. Every part of that matters. So let's think carefully here. At that time, Moses asked the Lord to retract, to take away one of the most painful consequences of his own sin. Moses' sin. And Numbers 20, as in a lot of Deuteronomy, you got to go back to Numbers, provides the background details. So if you're not familiar with the story, what's going on here? Well, Israel's wandering in the wilderness. This is years ago, decades ago. And they run out of water. And so they come grumbling to Moses. He's the leader, so let's give him an earful. And they say in Numbers 20, verse 4, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? If you're a leader hearing those words... My first thought is, where in the world do I start? (laughs) And Moses does the right thing. Lord, what do we do? That's good. 
God tells him, Numbers 20, verse 8, assemble the entire congregation and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Speak to the rock. Moses gathers the people, but he doesn't obey God's word. Numbers 20, verse 10, hear now, you rebels. Let's all fix our eyes on the Lord. Nope. He took his eyes off the Lord. He's looking at them, just like all of us do. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. What did the guy do wrong? Once we're beyond sympathizing with him. Well, he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. He he struck it in anger instead of speaking to it with faith. And he did it in front of the entire congregation. And the Lord holds him accountable accordingly. Numbers 20, 12. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What's the point? The consequences of sin are real things, friend. Real things. And the temptation to blame shift lies close at hand. So both in Numbers 137 and here in Deuteronomy, excuse me, Deuteronomy 137 and Deuteronomy 326, notice what Moses does. He puts all the responsibility on the Israelites who induced him to sin. Do you see that? The Lord was angry with me because of you. Well, is that true? In part. In part, yes. Because the entire episode arguably wouldn't have gone down if Israel had not grumbled and provoked Moses to anger. But, but does that mean Moses isn't at fault? Does that mean that when other people are provoking us to sin, we have no responsibility for how we respond? No. No. He still chose to sin, and the Lord pointedly refuses in verse 26, number, Deuteronomy 3, to take away the consequences enough from you, Moses. Do not speak to me of this matter again. What authority and what mercy are in those words? A commendable desire is motivating his request, right? He he longs to see what? The Lord display the mighty arm of his power on Israel's behalf as he's done it thus far on the other side of the Jordan. Moses knows, Lord, Lord, Sion and Og, that was just like the opening stanza in the symphony of your firework display. I want to see more, God. His, His motive is commendable in that sense. He Even his theology is spot on. He's confessing the Lord's utter uniqueness and exclusivity. There's nobody else like you, God, who can do the things you do. So so if all his motives are good, what he's longing for, what he wants to see is good, why does God say no? Well, because his request was out of line with God's revealed will. That the situation is similar to a Christian who knowingly dates or marries a non-Christian, hoping God will use your influence to bring them to Christ. Part of what you desire is good. But what are you still doing? You're still disobeying the will of God clearly revealed in his word by doing that. But Moses should have humbly submitted to God's authority. That's the point. And humbly accepted the consequences of his sin. Instead, he tests God's patience, he questions God's wisdom, and he keeps shifting the blame to other people. What's the takeaway? The irrevocable consequences of sin are real. And when we choose to go our way instead of God's way, what are the consequences? We miss out on opportunities. Opportunities just like Moses did. 
to see God's power and glory displayed in us and around us. So let's get practical. When marriage gets hard and you bail, you lose an opportunity to see God redeem a relationship. When life gets stressful and you turn to food or or alcohol to, to numb the pain, you lose an opportunity to see God satisfy your soul through the gift of his word. When the Lord gives you a chance to share the gospel and you stay silent, you lose an opportunity to see God show himself strong in your weakness. The the consequence of sin changes the way we experience God's power for real. But notice it didn't prevent Moses from experiencing the Lord's mercy. Look at verse 27. He gave him a glimpse of his provision from afar. Moses, go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. I'll let you see what Abraham saw Moses. And look at it with your eyes. You you realize, friend, God didn't owe Moses that any more than he owes you or me a single blessing in our life, right? All all that we have is a gift of grace. And the Lord's mercy didn't stop with what he let Moses see. He also gave him the privilege of participating in his work, his continuing work, even if it wasn't in the way Moses preferred. His role would be different because of his sin, but the Lord still had work for the man to do. Look at verse 28. Charge Joshua, encourage him, strengthen him, for he shall go at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you see Moses set him up for success instead of you. Ooh, that must have been hard. Right? What what does pride say when the consequences of our sin seem to permanently alter the opportunities available to us? That the trust we used to enjoy, the ministry we used to have, the, the work we dreamed of accomplishing. Well, pride says, all right, Lord, if you won't give me the leadership role or ministry platform I want, I'm out. I'm done serving the church. I'm done caring for your people. I'm even done prioritizing my spiritual life. Try that on for size. We, we, we can be just like a kid in a playground who says, God, if you don't play my game, I'm not playing. In contrast, what, what does a humble man or woman do when the consequences of our sins seem to permanently alter the opportunities before us? A humble man or woman says, Lord, I will gladly embrace whatever role you see fit to assign me, even if it means supporting someone else and doing the very ministry I long to do myself. God wasn't just giving Moses a a random final job. He was inviting him to walk down the path of humility before God and man. Friend, Getting to serve God in any capacity is a privilege. Don't lose sight of that. If if the consequences of sin in your life have impacted the way you're able to serve others, don't count yourself out from participating in the Lord's work, okay? Your role might be different, but God's good purposes for your life will continue to prevail if you're willing to humbly exchange your dreams for his ways. That's both a promise and the challenge. The consequences of sin are real, but in the mercy of God, they are not the center of the story. God is. We'll conclude with this. I trust it's clear at this point that Moses was not a perfect man. He was a broken man who needed a savior. He was an imperfect mediator, just like Joshua, just like every other ruler, leader, priest in the entire Old Testament. 
What should that remind us of? That there's only one man, one ruler, one king, who can lead us all the way home, never falling short into the good land that is heaven itself. And that man is Jesus. Unlike Moses, he brings the people of God all the way home. He finishes the work he begins because he's perfect in all his ways. Unlike Moses, Jesus could bear the guilt of our sin because he had no sin of his own. And unlike Moses, what, what did Moses do? He tried to shift the blame from himself onto the people of God. What did the sinless son of God do? He took the blame that rightfully belonged to the people of God onto himself. So we could have the salvation rest he died to give. In this chapter, neither the good works Moses accomplished or the enemies Israel faced or the sins Moses committed are the center of the story. The Lord is. So be careful, Christian, how you tell your story. Be careful. God God gives rest to his people through his people. That means your good works matter, but they're not the center of the story. Jesus says that the God who delivered us in the past will deliver us again. That means what? That our enemies are real, but they're not the center of the story. God is. And, and even when the consequences of your sin change the way you experience God's power, remember that doesn't sideline you from participating in God's work. Your sin isn't the center of the story. Jesus is. Let's pray and ask for God's help to never forget that.